thought that would be a helpful video um, to kind of illustrate and prepare us for our study this morning. The only reason that guy is content and happy is because he's comfortable. And he hasn't moved on to anything that would be challenging or difficult or stretch him in any way. And he says it kind of, why progress and push yourself when you can take it easy and always know what to do? I mean, first grade's a scary place. Why not just stay in kindergarten? Now, that illustrates the spiritual point that as believers, we're supposed to move forward and we're supposed to progress. We're supposed to become more mature and more like Christ every day. And our calling is to do that. And as we saw last week, we are called to a much higher standard even than we tend to set for ourselves because when we look at the Word, it says, here's how I want you to be. And that's especially important in relationship to each other and how effective we are in encouraging and strengthening each other and building each other up spiritually. Now, let's go back to our text last week, Romans chapter 14. We're going to be there again. How did you do with the homework? You do okay? Some of you, how many... How many took a stab at it. Show me hands. Well, it's not bad. It's about two-thirds of you. This is, this is such an important text for the body of Christ, and there's so much to digest and spend time with. And this morning, we want to kind of bracket what we studied last week and look at the rest of the passage. The title of the message is Appealing to Reason. And, and the reason I chose that title is that any time Paul writes, he writes with impeccable logic. And he writes in a way that stirs both the heart and the mind because Paul was a highly intelligent individual. He had studied with the finest teachers. If you read through Romans or if you've ever studied through Romans, you know that his analysis and his ability to, to cut to the chase in terms of his argument is just phenomenal. But he also is a passionate person. We see that in a lot of his writings. You look at First and Second Timothy. Uh, you look at Philippi, uh, the book of Philippians. Um, you see there's a passion and an energy and, and a joy and excitement there. So he balances that very well in terms of how he writes. So in one sense, Romans 14 is an appeal to, to reason, as we would title reason, the logic and the, and the uh, wisdom and the benefit of doing it this way. And then on the other hand, he's appealing to the reason behind it, the motivation, the, the impetus for action, why we do what we do. Now, last week I, I gave you seven questions at the end, and I hope you, you wrote them down about how we should approach these kind of gray areas, the things that are controversial, the things that we debate, is that okay for Christians to do or not okay for Christians to do because it's not specific in the Word of God. And, and there are things that we suspect maybe are a little bit questionable and we're, we're not quite sure whether they're right or wrong and they're kind of stuck between legalism and liberty, as we talked about last week. Um, and, and the seven questions that I gave you, let me just recap them, were, number one, would I joyfully do this in front of my kids? Number two, would I joyfully do this in front of my mother? That's kind of the yikes question. Number three, would I joyfully do this in front of my spouse? Does my spouse know about it? Number four, would I joyfully do it in front of my Lord? And then we asked three other questions. Does it preoccupy my time and thinking at the expense of my responsibilities? Six, if I misuse it or abuse it, can it actually do damage to me physically or to my career, marriage, or relationship with my kids? And then seven, does it make me more holy or more worldly? Now, I hope those questions just created some 
analysis in your head and that you spend some time with the Lord kind of honestly working out what do I believe and what can I defend and, and how do I really uh, feel, not just in terms of the visceral emotions, but how do I really believe? What's my conviction about these things? And should I continue to walk in the way that I've walked or does there need to be change? Now, as I said, we're going to bracket verses 12 and 13, which are our main text last week. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 3 to 9, and then we're going to go over to verses 14 to 21 at the end. And this will give us a framework for what we studied last week. It may seem a little backwards, like why don't we do the framework first and get to the point. But I think the way we're doing this will help us actually flesh out the principles in terms of how they should practically be done. Okay, Romans chapter 14, let's start in verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats, does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now, Paul establishes at the outset that we have to be on guard against either side. If you look back at verse 3, you see this. On one hand, we might have contempt. It's a very strong word in the Greek language. It means to utterly despise. So on one hand, on one extreme, we might utterly despise someone who chooses not to participate in what is spiritually questionable or spiritually gray. That's the one side. On the other side, we might judge, which means to kind of serve as the arbiter, to be the decision maker on what is right and wrong, rather than using the word of God, we might judge those who have decided that it's okay for them to participate. He says, neither of these is something that we should be doing. And the primary reason not to do this is simply that the, the Lord is able to do it better than us. He's able to be the one who judges. He's able to be the one who convicts and reminds us when we're not being pleasing to him. So Paul kind of asks it rhetorically and, and I would say with a little bit of an edge and, and, and with just kind of, this doesn't make any sense, but let me ask it anyway in verse 4. Why are you doing that? If the Lord can do it, and the Lord's better than you at it, and the Lord has every right to do it versus us, then why are we doing it? Why are we utterly despising people that aren't participating in what we think they should, and why are we judging those who are participating in what we think they shouldn't? Leave it to the Lord. And then we see the second reason in verse 4 why we need to stay out of it. He says, because we are accountable ultimately to the Master. We can always skip over the first thought because it's so logical that Paul says, I don't even know why I'm talking about it. Let's get to the real issue. The real issue is, you're accountable to Christ. 
And Christ knows every thought. He knows every intent of the heart. If you're going to do something, and if I'm going to do something, we better make absolutely sure and be convinced that it will please Him if we do it. Now that means that we need to move beyond what is convenient and what is easily easy and what's popular and what we kind of feel pressured to do. And we need to follow in a place of being held by true conviction. Now where is conviction born? Where does conviction stir in our heart? First of all, it stirs by the Word of God. It has to be first and foremost. Beyond anybody's opinion or any message or anything else, it has to start with the Word of God. Study to show yourself approved unto God so that you understand what's there. And when we get into the Word, we know, don't we, that it's firm and not open for debate. Somebody say amen to that. This book is not subjective. This book is not, well, let's see how I feel today and if that fits into that. This book is not, well, I'm going to take this passage because I like that, but I'm not going to take that passage because that makes me uncomfortable and I might have to change my lifestyle. It's sharp. It cuts. It divides. It integrates into our heart. It convicts us. It challenges us. And it encourages us to live a different way. So we can't come to this book and say, well, I'll take part, but I won't take all. This is firm, and it's not open for debate. And conviction starts here. Always make sure your convictions are born out of the Word and defensible by the Word. If they're not, they're not very good convictions. So start with the Word of God. Second, the Holy Spirit's influence. Now, why is that second? We might say, well, we've got the Word, but the Spirit's speaking to me, and He's talking to me and convicting me, and, and I heard from Him, and I was praying, and He spoke to my heart. Well, that's wonderful, and that should happen. But the Spirit wrote the Word, and He uses the Word to teach us. Yes, the Spirit of God influences us, but we also can subjectively interpret what He's saying based on our own biases, right? We can say, well, I heard the Spirit say this because we want to hear the Spirit say that. That's why everything must be tested by the Word of God and must conform to the Word. And then Paul adds a third caveat. Founded on the Word, founded on the Spirit's leading, but third, do it out of concern for the spiritual protection and health of others. To emphasize the utter importance of this being what determines how we live and how we should think and what we should choose, the Holy Spirit makes sure that we don't miss His point. And in verses 6 and 8, he repeats something five times. Anytime there's repetition, we're supposed to pay attention. And he says five times in verses 6 and 8, do this for the Lord. Do this for the Lord. Whether eat or drink, it's for the Lord. Whether you live or die, it's for the Lord. Just make sure you know it's for the Lord. Say it with me, for the Lord. Say it, for the Lord. How am I supposed to live? For the Lord. Not for myself, not for the benefit of my friends, not so people will think I'm cool, not so I have a thousand friends on Facebook. I'm supposed to live for the Lord. There is no other option. And the Spirit says it again and again and again and again and again. Five times He says, make sure you are living for the Lord. Whatever you do, do it for the Lord. To honor Him, to respect Him, to bring Him praise, and to draw others to ourselves. 
And just in case we don't miss those five uses in verses 6 to 8, in the middle of those, in verse 7, he says, by the way, you don't live for yourself. You live for the Lord. You live for the Lord. You don't live for yourself. You live for the Lord. You live for the Lord. You live for the Lord. Can we possibly miss that message? There's no way if you look at those three verses, you can come out and say, I am allowed to live for myself as a believer. I'm allowed to be all about myself. It is all about me. Look at me. I am the man. There's no way you can look at those verses and say, I live for me. You have to say, I live for the Lord. Everything in the New Testament emphasizes that. From the Great Commission, go out into the world and take the good news that Christ has redeemed you and changed you, that it's not of yourself. Tell that to others. To the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't love yourself more than the Lord. And then, by the way, before you start loving yourself, love others. He says it again. Die to self daily. Don't live for yourself. Live for the Lord. Take up your cross. Be like Christ. Follow me. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, you're to love unconditionally, not about yourself. It's sacrificial. He says in Ephesians 5, you're to love your spouse like Christ loved the church and sacrifice and submit to them. In Philippians 2, he says, let this mind be in you that's in Christ, who humbled himself and gave himself in sacrifice. Everything keeps coming back to living contrary to self. And then we get to Romans 14. Six to eight. And six times, add verse seven, six times the Spirit of God says, you live for the Lord. Now the Spirit lays that foundation for us and then we transition into last week's verses. <coughs> and we're reminded, look at verse 11 because we didn't deal with it last week. We're reminded in verse 11 that each of us is going to stand before God's judgment seat. And he says in verse 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And then continuing that thought, like, don't forget now, you're gonna, the Lord's watching, he's gonna evaluate how you live. Then he moves into verse 13 and he says, in light of that, don't be a stumbling block. You remember the word from last week? It's scandal on. Don't, don't be somebody that sets a trap and trips up others or causes them to fall. So, so now you're living for the Lord. It's all about the Lord. And you're supposed to remember you're going to have to stand before the Lord. And you're going to have to give account of yourself and make sure in light of that that you don't cause others to stumble. And then he moves into the next section. And the next section, as Paul develops it so beautifully and logically in his writing, is where we really get into practicality. Look at verse 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother's hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they're evil for the man who eats and gives offense 
It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Now, the first thought there, verse 14, that sets the tone for everything else, and we need to be very careful with this verse, is he says, nothing is unclean of itself. As a good Bible student now, don't just pull that verse out and say, there, there's my defense. Nothing is unclean of itself. That's what the Bible says. Well, it's interesting, because if nothing is unclean in itself, why is there so much corruption in the world? It's because sin and man got involved. And they changed everything that God had intended for purity and for rightness. And the evidence of that is how quickly things change after the fall in Genesis 3. Man is blocked from the purity of the garden, and everything outside the garden is distorted. Now there's pain and work and toil and suffering and thorns and death and dirtiness. It didn't have to be that way. But by choosing sin, man made it that way. Sin causes what was right to take on a spiritual stigma. That means we can't argue, well, it's okay for me to do anything because the Bible says nothing's unclean. No, because of the stigma, there are things that we know are wrong. There are things that are acknowledged by everybody as evil. I don't know if you saw the story this week of this abortion clinic in Philadelphia. It was an illegal clinic, and the doctor wasn't even licensed as a doctor. And I won't be graphic with you this morning because it would make you throw up. But you should look at the story. Even the mainstream press, even the liberal press, was disgusted by it. They knew it was wrong. They knew there was something evil about that. There is a sense that things are wrong. So we know to stay away from those, but then there are the things that are culturally acceptable. And we're a little bit uneasy about them. We're not quite sure, oh, maybe I shouldn't, that seems, a little, that seems a little messy. And then you have the things that are culturally acceptable, but Christians differ about. And that's where most of the, the debate happens, like Packers Bears. We know the bears are evil, right? Right? We know that. That's culturally acceptable to some down in Chicago. What's our guide? What's our guide? It says nothing's unclean. But notice the next phrase. The Bible says if it's unclean to one of us, then that's their conviction. And it needs to be honored and respected and protected. What hit me as I studied this text is the text isn't making a case for the things that we should try to justify as clean. It's not talking about latitude. He's talking about how we're to act toward our brothers and sisters who think that something is unclean and impermissible for their convictions. That's a key difference there. Because the passage is about living to the highest standard personally, and then listen now, helping others to live to the highest standard. There's a collegial aspect to this. It's a team concept. It's, look, you and I need to help protect, strengthen, and guard each other so that we're maturing and becoming like Christ. And then he says there's a second factor. Nothing's unclean of itself, but we can make it unclean by having the wrong motives or by misusing whatever it is. Let me give you a very broad example that we all know is wrong. The name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ is holy, 
and it's pure and it's never to be taken in vain. If we as believers say Jesus Christ, oh, it just fills us with joy that He has redeemed us, right? We used to sing, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. You ever remember that old hymn? Five of you. Thank you. I see the hand in the back. What great words it is. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. There's no other name better. Fills my every longing, everything that I would need and desire is filled in Christ. And not only that, but as I go forward, I'm full of joy. It just keeps me singing. Or, or Bill Gaither wrote the great words, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Jesus' name is above all others. I get chills even saying it. But when somebody says it derogatorily or as a curse, they use it in an unclean way. Something as simple, I'm going to touch some toes here, as saying, oh my God. Or even texting, OMG, because that's very popular. OMG. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. The name of God is holy and pure, and it is never to be used in an unpure way. Or let me give you another example. David danced before the ark of God in celebration and in worship and in joy of God's faithfulness. But if someone dances sensually with the purpose of being sexually provocative or impure, that's a dishonor. The dancing in and of itself is not unclean. It's the way it's appropriated and practiced and the intent behind it that makes it unclean. Nothing wrong with moving around. I don't think white people should do it personally, but that's just me. Or maybe just this white person. But there's nothing inherently wrong with it, or David wouldn't have done it. Right? But when you do it with a purpose, when there's sexual innuendo behind it, when there's something there that has a greater goal, and by greater goal I mean a lesser goal, you know what I'm going here, then it becomes impure. That's what Paul means here in Romans 14. So there are two parts to it. Being pure to make sure everyone around us is encouraged to be pure, and then being pure by appropriating what God has given us in holy ways rather than distorting them to satisfy ourselves. That's what he's talking about here. Look back at verse 15. He says, walk according to love. Walk according to love. Listen now. First and foremost, what does love require? It requires self-sacrifice. So my love for you, your love for me, our love for each other will be proven by how much we sacrifice even in the gray areas. Look at the alternative in verse 15. He says the alternative is to destroy those for whom Christ died. The word there means to ruin. So by my actions, by your actions, I can either build up, edify, love, encourage, strengthen, mature, and help you to become a stronger believer, and you can do the same for me, or I can ruin your work and you can ruin mine. They say, well, you should be stronger than that. True, but why does the Bible tell us that? Because not all of us are strong. 
And that shouldn't be our concern. The concern at this point is not to deflect the blame and say, well, it's your fault that you're weak. Okay, help the person be built up then. Don't sit and blame. Look at your own convictions and look at what you're doing that might hinder them. This is a reminder here. This verse 15 is a reminder from the Spirit that the stakes are not small. Christ died and rose again to redeem us. He showed the supreme sacrifice of self, the ultimate expression of love. So for those who know that redemption and love firsthand, we are called to live in a way that honors Him and models that with each other. Then, move on. Verse 16. Paul talks about the overall impact of our choices. He says in verse 16, don't let what is good for you be spoken of as evil. In other words, there are things that we feel are okay. There are things that we believe are permissible within our convictions that may possibly be misconstrued by other people as evil. I'm going to say that again. There are things that we think are okay and things that are permissible in our own convictions that others may misconstrue as evil. Now, evil's the key word. Paul does not use the word unclean that he used in verse 14. Unclean in the text means common and impure. It was written with the Jews in mind of the things that were ceremonially unclean. He doesn't use the word, this is impure. He says, don't do things that others might misconstrue as impure. He says, don't do things that others might misconstrue as, tell me the word, evil. The word is blasphemeo. Who cares, right? Well, blasphemeo is the word from which we get the word blaspheme. It literally means that which is reviled or despised as evil. That's a very important distinction. It's a much stronger emphasis. Paul's point is, what may seem okay and permissible to you may seem as loathsome as to another believer. And because of their conviction, it may be almost unthinkable to them that a believer would act and participate in a certain way. So you, believer, need to be on guard and watch out and make sure that by your actions, other people don't construe it that way. Because the impression that we have on others, Christian and non-Christian, has big implications about what they believe about the Word and about the Lord and about us. And sometimes we may not even know what they're watching. Which is why the Bible says to us, walk circumspectly. As you walk, look around. Make sure you're not getting yourself in trouble. Watch out for the traps that are being laid by the enemy. Make sure you're looking around you to see who's looking at you. Not only so you won't trip, but so others won't trip. You ever thought about that verse that way? Walk circumspectly. We always think, well, I gotta be, I gotta tiptoe and be careful. That's not what it's saying. It's saying move forward, but be on guard. Watch out, look out for the traps, but also be aware of those that are around you. Because as you make decisions and as you progress and as you have your convictions, other people are going to be looking at you and they're going to be forming many of their opinions about the Lord based on your life. So make sure you walk very carefully. Now you might be saying, all right, stop for a minute, Rhodes. That's unfair. 
Under that standard, I'm going to have to be a Puritan. I'm not even going to be able to leave my house. Because if everybody's watching me, there's always going to be somebody who may be hurt or may have their faith shaken. And I would say to you, that's exactly Paul's point. It's exactly his point. If there is that kind of potential for someone to be damaged or for our reputation to be misconstrued, then maybe that gray area isn't as important as we think. Maybe that thing that we say, well, it's permissible to me, maybe it's not that important. Remember the questions from last week? The key question was number four. Can you do it unashamedly and joyfully in front of the Lord? Because if not, it's not worthy of Him. And as an addendum, if the Lord asked us to stop doing it for the sake of His name and for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our witness and for the sake of the spiritual maturation of a brother and sister in Christ, if we would not be willing to forsake it, then that's more important to us than he is. And Christ meant it very seriously when he said, you better hate everything in comparison to how much you love me or you're not worthy to be my disciple. You better not value anything above me because I'm first. Now with that in mind, and I know that's heavy and all of a sudden the mood came down from the Packers joke now to we're oral somber, right? But how could we explain standards that are any less stringent to the Lord? You know, this was illustrated to me in a really unexpected way this week. On, I think it was Wednesday night. I was just glancing at the TV as I was uh, walking through my room, and, and I saw a TV ad for Lexus. I don't know if you've seen it. It's where they pull the cars up on the crane. Have you seen that one? And this ad caught my attention. I, I only caught the very end of it, but I knew it was about the quality of their cars and the ad said to visit Lexus.com slash the hard way. So I did. And we saw the slide, which you won't be able to read, but let me read it to you. It says, the hard way means insisting on the best solution, not the easy one. The hard way is choosing hand craftsmanship over mass production. The hard way believes that one one hundredth of a millimeter off is too much. The hard way values enduring quality over expediency. And if that's what it takes to engineer automobiles that inspire absolute confidence, then there is no alternative. You ever driven a Lexus? How many have ever driven a Lexus? Anybody? It's a nice car, isn't it? You get in the seat of a Lexus and you're not messing around. The leather's hand-stitched, top quality. The wood is nice mahogany. The car drives impeccably. You hit 80 and you're not even trying. Not that I ever have. The car is built for speed. It's built to be a precision automobile. It is an amazing piece of machinery. It's no wonder they get fifty dollars to $80,000 a car. Now, I looked at that on their website, and the website goes on to explain and list the areas in which they apply the standards that I just read. The engine, the paint, the wood, the leather, the lights. The engineers and builders are trained not to miss a detail or to fall short of the highest standard. 
I looked at that and I said, wait a minute. They're using those standards for a car. For a car. And then I thought about Jesus' words. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There is no equivocation in those words. There's no out. There's no finesse. There's no way to say, well, he didn't really mean that. He really meant that. And I looked at that, and I looked at the Lexus ad, and I said, what if there was a website worthy to be my disciple.com? What would it say? So I made it up myself. Because there isn't that website. But I thought, if there was, what would it say is the hard way? Let's see what the Lord led us to. Don't need worry about writing this down. I'm going to give you a card on the way out that has this. The hard way means insisting on the highest standard of holiness, not the easy way out. The hard way is choosing time in the Lord's presence over hurried contact. The hard way believes that one one-hundredth of a millimeter off morally is too much. The hard way values sacrifice and faithfulness over expediency and compromise. And if that's what it takes to be called a disciple of Jesus Christ in a way that inspires his absolute confidence in me, then there is no alternative. Now listen, we can come up, and I'll give you a listen in a second. We can come up with a list of controversial gray issues that Scripture doesn't specifically talk about. And we could do a whole series on this. I'm not going to. Because I don't want to focus on, on the symptom. But let's just list out a couple of the things that we know are kind of gray. Drinking. Huge issue in this state. The average person in this state tastes alcohol at the age of, guess, nine. No, there's not a problem with drinking in this state. Highest rate of alcohol-related accidents of any state in the country. Drinking is a huge issue and it polarizes Christians probably more than any other issue. Smoking. What we eat, how we indulge. Dancing, going to clubs. Pornography, which is probably less gray than the others. Movies. Not just R. PG-13, even PG, even the trailers now. At G-rated movies are uncomfortable. What we visit on the internet all the time in non-productivity because we're looking at frivolous things. TV, the shows we watch, how much time we waste. Relationships, whether they're healthy or harmful. Sexual purity, which is still a debate for many Christians even though we're told that sanctification means to abstain from all sexual impurity. And on and on. Now you may think, well, it isn't explicitly talked about in the Bible, so how can you make a value judgment about it being wrong? Aren't you being judgmental? Aren't you contradicting last week? No, I'm not, because it's not about me making the judgment. It's about an issue of where our hearts are 
and whether you and I are fully convicted about it and able to defend it from the Word of God and whether we can do it without violating the spirit of Romans 14. Not to mention whether when we do it, Jesus Christ will be pleased. The kingdom of God is not about a list of rules. That's what God gave to the people in the Old Testament because they were mature, immature and illogical and they refused to follow him. So God says, fine, you won't listen to me? I'll give you laws. You're not going to be able to follow them anyway. You want a list of rules? I'll give you a list of rules. But you're going to fail. And then he changes the focus and he says, let's move beyond do this, do that, do this, do that because I'm going to come in the form of Christ, I'm going to fulfill the law and I'm going to change it so you will focus now on the issue of the heart rather than the issue of the law. And here Christ comes and he's teaching and the Pharisees are still going, well, your disciples helped somebody on the Sabbath. And they ate without washing their hands. And they walked more than a mile and a half and the law says we can't do that. Christ says, you're a bed of vipers. You don't get it. You Pharisees have rewritten and distorted the law more than anybody can imagine. Don't talk to me about the law. I wrote the law. The issue is an issue of the heart. And Jesus keeps talking about the spiritual condition of the heart. And he says, love me with all your tell me. Heart. Not love me with all your law. Love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The heart and the mind control the actions. If your heart and your mind are right with God, then your actions will follow. That's why the Lord says in Hebrews 10.6, I'll put my laws on your heart and on your mind I will write them. And if you really love me, you'll keep my commandments. I won't have to keep reminding you, but in case you need a reminder, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my own spirit. He's going to indwell you. He's going to convict you, teach you, and encourage you to do what I say. So don't sit up here and say, well, there's a list of rules of what Christians can do. We can do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. Listen, that's a waste of time. Get your heart right with the Lord. Now, when we read Romans 14 with that perspective, it makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? All of a sudden, we stop coming up with all our petty defenses of the things that we can do in our freedom and the things that we can do and are allowed to do and shouldn't do and whatever, whatever. Listen, read what the text says. Look at it. It's in verse 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, don't get preoccupied with the symptoms of heart disease if there's really heart disease. But here's what the kingdom of God is. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Indulge me two more minutes. I want you to notice the order of that because the Spirit is very specific when he writes. Everything in the Word is written in a certain order. Notice the order he uses. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness is first and foremost. Not peace, not unity, not love, not let's just all get along. He says holiness comes first. Because if it's not holy, it doesn't belong. 
We can be unified with a lot of people. And we can be at peace with a lot of people. But if there is not holiness and righteousness at the center of it, it's a waste of time. Why don't we unify with all the other religions of the world? Because they're not about biblical holiness. So I can't be in unity with another person who believes there's another God and discounts Jesus Christ. It doesn't work. It doesn't mean I'm a snob. It just means I'm trying to follow what Scripture says. Second, if we're living righteously and by the Word, what's the next effect? Then we'll have peace. Lack of peace means something is off somewhere. Someone's being selfish or someone has the wrong motives or the wrong priorities or someone's not seeking righteousness first. If there's a lack of peace, there's a lack of righteousness because peace follows righteousness. And then what's the third result? The third result is joy. Joy only comes out of living righteously and being at peace with other people and with God. And then when that happens, the joy is magnified exponentially. The family of God only works when we're living righteously, when we're in submission and selfless sacrifice and we're seeking the Lord and walking in holiness. When that happens, oh, everything is great. But if righteousness is not a priority, it all collapses. Now let's finish. Verse 18. Having laid all this groundwork, Paul then says, this is the way to serve Christ. Notice the verb. This is the way to serve Christ. And it's acceptable to God. And it makes for peace. And it makes for the building up of one another, edification, encouragement, maturation. So what are we to do? How does this happen? Look at verse 19 and we're done. He says, pursue these things. The word is active and intentional. Chase after them. Make them your singular focus. Be the one who makes it happen. That will require personal sacrifice. He says that in verse 20. It echoes verse 15. Don't tear down God's work now. Come on, believer. Don't tear down God's work over something as frivolous as food or drinking or sexual impurity or websites that contaminate your mind or places you go that are questionable. It is not good, verse 21, to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. There's nothing I can add to that. There's nothing to add to that. It's not good to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Why? Because you are living for the Lord. You're living to show love for the Lord. You're living to show love to your brother and sister in Christ. What better way to do that than through self-denial and sacrifice? And what better way to prove it, I'm done, than living the hard way? Living the hard way. Listen, if that's what it takes to be called a disciple of Christ, and if that's what it takes for Jesus to look at us and say, well done, then there is no alternative. There's no other option. And I know that's hard, and I know that challenges us, and I know we say, well, I don't know, I'm going to have to think about that. I'm just going to tell you this morning, there's no alternative. This is what we're called to. 
Father, we pray this morning that you would help us. Lord, this is a hard word for us. It's challenging because it confronts, as we've been confronted throughout the week, areas in our lives where we have allowed maybe more latitude than we should. Where we've done things that have the potential to harm or hurt our brother or sister or to damage our witness in some way. Lord, only you know what those areas are in our lives. Sometimes we don't even know because we've justified them in so many ways. But Lord, you're challenging us now as a church and as individual believers to be called to a new standard. Lord, that is going to mean sacrifice. It is going to mean thinking in love for you and love for others first and foremost above ourselves. And Lord, the enemy hates that and he will push that and he will want to make us very, very selfish. We pray against him. We pray against his work. We pray against his influence. We pray against his temptation. We pray that you would fill us, that your spirit would fill us now to overflowing so that we would walk according to the spirit. We would walk according to love. And Lord, may the power of our witness be so phenomenal because we have chosen the hard way. We ask for your help, Lord, because this will be difficult. And we pray that as a body, we would work together to meet this standard that you've called us to. We thank you, praise you, and bless you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a simple chorus. I bless your name. I bless your name. I give you honor. Do we give Him honor with our whole life today, church? That's something we need to think about. We give you praise. You are the life, the truth, the way. I bless your name. I bless your name. Stand and sing it together. I bless your name. I bless your name. I give you honor, give you praise. You are the life, the truth, the way. I bless your name. I bless your Let's lift him up. Let's bless him today. I bless your name. I bless your 